Welcome to the 7pm Cafe Podcast. Today, our guest is Juan Agustin Marquez, Puerto Rican director, producer, editor, four-time Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, best known for his documentary 100,000, The Last Colony, and the national music TV show De Para Tres with Billy Montilla. Go grab your coffee, your tea, your favorite drink, and listen Welcome to the 7 p.m. Cafe Podcast. Today, our guest is Juan Agustin Marquez, Puerto Rican director, producer, editor, four-time Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, and tech speaker. Documentaries Los 17, the 17, 100,000, The Last Colony, and the national music TV show Te Para Tres with Billy Montilla. Before we discuss and talk about the documentaries, welcome, Juan. Hello, thank you. So let's start from the beginning. How the interest in film and documentary started? I was born in 1981 and in Puerto Rico. And so by the time I was 10 or 11 in the early 90s, you know, I was uh, completely submerged in American TV. And I had very strong, in I've shown very strong interest since very early, very early in my life. I've, been, I've shown a lot of interest towards theatrics, you know, being on stage and things like that. So, you know, mixing that personality trait with my interest in movies, I, I, I think it, it started very, my interest started very early. And then by the time I was about 15, I had already decided that I wanted to be a movie writer. And by the time I was 16, I was I started to shoot, edit, and uh, shoot videos and edit. And that's when I started to shift my interest from becoming a writer. Then I, I started to get more uh, interested in the technology and the, the gadgets and uh, editing software and things like, like that. So I gravitated towards towards those fields and I kind of left behind uh it's not that I don't do writing but I I definitely I feel a lot more confident with the gadgets and and with the cameras and with the editing equipment so I found I that's kind of how I found my groove so by the time I was 16 I had already decided that I was going to be a filmmaker and, and that was it you know I went to I went to a great high school that had uh, a great video program. So I started, I started video in high school. So when I got to college by the year 2000 to film school, Ithaca College, I had a very strong foundation of video editing and camera, uh, how to use the camera. So when I got to film school, it wasn't filmmaking and movie making and just putting projects together wasn't a new thing for me it was something that I already practiced. So that was that kind of while I was in college, then that kind of allowed me to to be more advanced in my group and it allowed me to experiment more. So I feel that the head start that I got in video editing since high school was a huge thing that has helped me uh, to this day. Most people start editing, you know, when they're in college uh, or around that time, you know, back in the 2000s when that technology was very limited. Now we can all edit in our phones. So it's not even a big deal. But back in the early 2000s, you know, most people had to like wait until college to get to a camera. So I had the privilege of having that experience before that in my life. And, and that gave me a great edge. 
So that's how I started. I guess, you know, that's college and high school. And then I, I went to Puerto Rico 2004 and I did a project called Operación Éxito. And I produced that and it was a, also a TV special. And then I did, a, I had my own company with two business partners that we produce videos uh, for Puerto Rico's uh, tourist attractions called itour.com. And then after that, I did the documentary 100,000. And then, after, so that's kind of how it, it all went. Let's talk a little bit more about that experience because you went from Puerto Rico to New York to go to school. Was it an easy transition? Yeah, it really wasn't. It wasn't a big deal for me to go to college and, and it wasn't, there was no obstacles for me in, the, in that sense. It was a very natural step. I mean, it was cold, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really can't say that it was a hard transition and film school was a dream of mine since, you know, so going to film school, it's, it's not that it's not challenging, but it was, it was my dream. So I was very happy to be there. It never, like, if you're a filmmaker and you're doing films, and you're passionate about being a filmmaker, simply be happy. <laughs> so I was happy being a filmmaker in a place that gave me all the equipment. And so it was, it was paradise for me. So it wasn't a bad transition. It was like I, I had finally arrived. It was, it was like a, a coming home of sorts to, to like-minded people. You mentioned you went back to Puerto Rico. Do you start doing documentaries back in the island? So you only went to college in New York and then you go back yeah. to Puerto Rico. Yeah, I went to college in New York and I just immediately after four years graduated, I went to, straight to Puerto Rico and I started working in Puerto Rico. And I I had an intention, a very clear intention of working in fiction. And somehow I ended up being a doc, the documentary guy in Puerto Rico or one of the documentary guys. But yeah, uh, documentaries kind of arrived at, in my life because it, as a process of reduction, like when you start eliminating all uh, aspects of filmmaking, like I've, I've said this many times, like I didn't have money. I didn't have a script. I didn't have actors. So what can you do with a camera? Well, you can do a documentary, you know? So doing documentaries was a way of, you know, being a filmmaker, doing what I love and requiring the least possible amount of funding and, and, and equipment and all those things. So it was just like the feasible way of making movies, which was always the, uh, the ultimate goal. Let's start about your documentaries. You started with 100,000. How do you choose a subject and why that one? 100,000. It's a documentary about the overpopulation of dogs in the street of Puerto Rico. And that particular story came about from my wife and I. She said she 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 basically suggested the topic. She she's an animal advocate and she was like I think you should do a documentary about this and if you want my help I'll I'll help you. Like if you want me to be a producer in this film, I I, I will I think this is a great topic to do. So she was so passionate about it. So I just I was like all right, you know. Okay, so that's a topic. So let's pitch that. Coming from Puerto Rico and having gone to New York and then going back to Puerto Rico and doing that documentary also gives you a lot of perspective on particularly about for me, it was about dogs and how dogs are treated. So like before I went to college, I had a, a perception of, of what a dog was. And after going to college and really go, going through a different culture than mine, not, not the college experience, but going living in a different culture where animals are kind of valued in different way, which was the stark difference between Puerto Rico and New York in terms of dogs. Then coming back from Puerto, to Puerto Rico, and then I started noticing the dogs in the street, which 
which I hadn't noticed as a local when I grew up there. So it was that perspective of having left the island, noticing that not every place has dogs everywhere and that dogs everywhere is, shouldn't be a common sight. I kind of had to leave and come back and, and see that. And that that then it became very, very obvious to me that we had a, a problem that a lot of people are not seeing and did not see because they're like so many problems. If you're so used to the problem, then it just becomes part of the landscape. So, yeah, perspective gave us a lot of a big push to do that film. I saw yesterday the documentary yeah. and it made me think of that. Like I live in New York and people here treat their dogs as like another member of the family. Like they even treat better than the dog if a guest comes in and you don't like the dog, you're the one intruding yeah. the place. And it's yeah. not like the same in Puerto Rico. Like even, yeah, it's it's so different. Like I remember seeing the documentary and like here they buy food for the dog in Puerto Rico. We give the leftovers for the dogs. Yeah. There's so like small difference that we don't see because we live there that once you leave, then you notice those difference in culture. Yeah, I, it is. It is. I mean, and that's the beauty of traveling. That's that's really what you learn from traveling is you see what, you know, what has become normal in some countries and, and for the better, for worse, you could then bring those lessons back to your country and hopefully make it for the better. Was that the, the first documentary where you win the Emmy? Yes. 100,000 was my first Emmy winning documentary. It was my first feature documentary. It was honestly my first documentary. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done it. I mean, I've done a lot of video before that, but a deep investigation like that, no, that was truly my first documentary. Was that a surprise or you expected? Oh, was winning the Emmy a surprise? I gotta say it was always part of the plan. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as much of a surprise as it was a plan. Like I... It wasn't a random call that I got out of the blue saying, oh, you got an Emmy. It was a goal like a, an Olympic athlete would train for its goal. So it wasn't a surprise when I won. I mean, it was exciting, but, you know, we did the process. We were aiming for the moon with the film. We were doing as, as much as we could to make a good story. And then in the submission process for the Emmys that, you know, we, we worked very hard to make it, you know, everything, make sure everything was in order for for the for the film to qualify so it wasn't it was there was no surprises there obviously when you're when they call your name you get super excited you get butterflies you know yeah that was you know it's an exciting moment but it's not a it's not a random coincidence and it's not a committee that calls you you have to seek for that emmy just like like an olympic athlete has to seek for that medal you know not a surprise was the goal to go forward to push the problem to get a scene Absolutely. The Emmy definitely helped not just my personal career, but the, it helped promote the film and the film helped promote the, the cost of animal welfare in Puerto Rico. So the Emmy definitely had a huge impact. So it was it was a goal that we had before we shot a single frame of the film to do the best possible thing to get the right recognition for the mission of the film, which was to bring attention to this huge problem of overpopulation so it was all strategic no no coincidence obviously a lot of things are out of our control in this process but you you know you you, you do your best and and then go through the process you remember how long the process from pre-production to production to post-production took Yeah, actually, that was very specific because we were given a year to do that film. First of all, it was a grant that I won. The team that I was leading 
one. And with that grant was not only the money to do the film, but also the distribution in 14 Latin American countries and their public TVs. So it was it was a grant that we want to make the documentary. And it was very structured. And we had to meet certain deadlines and things like that for them to give us the money, because they it's not like they gave us all the money up front. They were letting money little by little as, as you went through the pre-production, production, and post-production process. So it was a very rigorous process and with a lot of supervision. Not, it wasn't, I mean, you know, we were editing internally, the editor and I, Gerardo Rodriguez, who's my co-editor and co-shooter and co-producer of the film, and I, it was an intimate process of editing and, and, and working in the production and post-production, which was a constant job. It's not, it's not like we shot... And then we sat down to edit. We, we would shoot Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and we would sit down and edit Tuesdays and Thursdays to start building the story. So that was, that was a very specific process. That, that idea of doing it Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, that, that was internal. Like that's, that's how we decided to do it. But we had a lot of uh, structure in terms of it wasn't just us. We had to report to a committee that was overseeing the production of the film. So, you know, we had to send drafts and we had to send like concepts and things like that. So it was very structured. So, yeah, it was. And that structure has helped me, you know, I've, I've basically have continued using that structure independently ever since. Well, let's move to the next documentary, Los 17, the 17. This one was such a unique story, a true story of 17 students who saved their school from closing in Puerto Rico. How do you find this story? This story is not really my story. This is this particular documentary, although I am a co-director in the film, this is probably the least personal film of, of mine because I was a very specifically hired gun to come in and shoot this film. So this is a Noel Quinones film, a Noel Quinones production. And he, it's his story. He had the vision. He had the insight. He just couldn't shoot it himself. So he sent me there to shoot it. And he's like, this is what I need you to do. I need you to capture the story, but do it your way. So that's, you know, Los 17, my second Emmy winning documentary. It's a work that I'm proud of, but it's probably my least, it's the least personal work that I've done because it's, it didn't really originate from me. I was a very specifically hired gun. Okay, let's move to the next documentary. Third documentary, The Last Colony, is such an interesting documentary. I think from all the work that I've seen from you, it's one of my favorites because you tackle such a big issue of the status. But I don't know if this is what's your intention, but I don't feel like you impose your opinion of what the status should be, but you let the people decide from themselves. How do you choose this big topic and shoot it that way? Well, that is, I'm so happy you asked that question. That is, that was such a central question in the pre-production because that was the only way I see that I could do the film. And that was the biggest point of suspicion of people when I went asking for money for financing. The people that I went, some of the people that I asked money to finance the film uh, were suspicious that I could really pull off a neutral tone documentary and not in post. And the real answer to that is that it was definitely intentional, but it And we were very extremely careful in every single word that we choose in the, in the documentary. 
but it also comes from a place of ignorance of, on my part. And I don't mean like I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was genuinely curious to relearn everything that I knew about the status. So I put my mind in a place of ignorance of like, I'm going to, I'm putting myself while I was doing the interviews as I, and I, I literally told my subjects, I don't think of me as a Puerto Rican. Think of me as a 15 year old boy in Minnesota who has never heard anything from Puerto Rico. You know, I, I just put the, so everybody that's a answering questions on camera, you don't know that as the audience, but they know that that's what I'm asking them. I asked them, explain it to me like you were explaining it to a friend of your children, you know, not as, as like you're trying to convince me to be a PNP or like try to convince me as you're somebody from not Puerto Rican. You know, you have no stake in this. You're not trying to convince me or you're not like you have to explain it to me in a way that I could understand it from a non-Puerto Rican perspective. And that was just going through that motion that that yield that result, which I think personally it was balanced. I've been accused of, you know, some people, <laughs> I saw a lot of people like you, I, I agree with you that it was balanced and, and that I didn't really take a particular side. Other people say, oh, it was obviously skewed for independence. It was obviously skewed for statehood. And it's usually people that are from opposite sides. You know, I've, I've heard statehooders say it was like I gave independentistas too much of a shot and I've heard the opposite. So, I mean, whether it's balanced or not, I think I did a good job on that. And I think a lot of people think that. And but, you know, it's not 100 percent consensus on that. I do appreciate the fact that you pointed that out because that was I lost a few hairs trying to make that very balanced. Yeah, I think the comments that you get, it just represents exactly what the documented shows. Even in YouTube, if you go and read the comments, like you can see it, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a reflection or a reflection, which is so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, it was funny even to see the film with a live audience, because when we did the premiere, like you could hear like you could hear the factions the puerto Rico, like people would like you could hear independentistas clap after their guy talked and then you can hear the statehooders clap when their guy talked and you can hear the boos when like <laughs> the opposite party talked. so it was a funny thing to witness how like, i remember after a particular segment in the film hearing somebody in the audience just like oh finally that guy shut up like you know because he wasn't like it was a guy that was from the opposite party so he was just puerto ricans that know the story and know the faces come in with a very charged emotional baggage into the film like you know they already like some of the characters and already hate some of the characters and they're not even uh they're not coming with an open mind but that's you know we expect like we, we were counting on people like that to watch the film too like this is a film for them as much as it was for people that didn't know anything about the topic so yeah those are that was kind of like my first audience like we need it <laughs> we need people that are passionate about the status issue which i know and you know that like a lot of puerto ricans are it's our favorite topic i guess <laughs> So it wasn't going to be too hard. If we did a good job, it wasn't going to be too hard to get people to talk about the status. It was more like riding the status wave. In the beginning, it shows that you are in United States asking people if they knew the status of Puerto Rico. Yeah. Were you surprised about the answer? I was expecting ignorance. So it wasn't that surprising. You know, I, I, I was expecting ignorance because, you know, why would people know that? But that was kind of the point. It is funny. I could have made that scene 
to make people look dumber. And I decided, you know, in the editing room, we decided not to. You know, we decided we're not making this movie to make fun of ignorant people that have no, you know. So, but it, it was, you can say it's in the cutting room floor of sorts just that we have stupid answers to the question, like uh, of Puerto Rico. Like, I remember a lady saying like, oh, I think it's a, a Puerto Rico. I think they have a monarchy or something like that. Like, you know, she was so lost and, it, you know, it could have been very easy to make, you know, but we didn't. So, yeah, there were some silly answers, but we decided we, we were not going to we were not going to go there. Yeah, it sounded so familiar to me because I live in New York. So I went to college in New York. So most of my classmates didn't know that they, the Puerto Rico was part of the United States. They didn't even know that you could fly to Puerto Rico without the visa. Seeing that was like, okay, this is something that I go through yeah. <laughs> in a daily basis that people don't know. So it was like a reflection for me. But I'm so happy to hear that because that's precisely I made this film for you, you know, for me, but for you, too. You know, I made it for Puerto Ricans that are right on that. They're not 100 percent on the island and they're you know, they have a, one foot on the island, one foot off the island, like so many of us. So I made that film for people like you that have had to answer this question so many times. And hopefully at some point you could be like, you know, just shut up and watch this film. <laughs> so honestly, I really made it for you and for, you know, for us. So how would you explain the movie, the documentary to a person that doesn't know Puerto Rico? I would say it's a it's a documentary about Puerto Rico's most talked about topic that barely ever it's understood outside of Puerto Rico. It's a documentary that presents the options of Puerto Rico faces to move towards decolonization and the obstacles that it has faced. And I, I call it a multi-layered conversation because we try to include as many voices as we can to present the complexity of the topic, the vast complexity. And we made it in English for as a conversation to explain to a third party. This is a movie for to explain to the exterior. It's not a movie for by Puerto Ricans for Puerto Ricans is a movie by Puerto Ricans to explain not just to an American audience, but really to a worldwide audience what our situation is. Obviously, it's in English, it's not in Mandarin, but it is it is made for the world to understand us as opposed to a local movie for us to know us better. It really was meant to, that's why it's in English. And I say it in the, the movie because most of the speakers in the movie are Spanish speakers. And, you know, it was a big question. It's like, why are you asking these people to talk in English when their first language is Spanish? Like, well, you know, I'm, this is not about being commercial. This is a documentary. This is about putting, you know, giving it as, as wide reach as possible, the topic. And if I have done it in Spanish, honestly, I mean, maybe the, it would have been a great film and people say, oh, subtitles are the same. And, you know, we could have done it in Spanish with subtitles in English. And I don't know. I think it was the right move to do it in English and to do it just like I said at the beginning, to do it in a way that we're explaining every topic to any, to somebody that's not from Puerto Rico. If the movie had been in Spanish, they would have been explaining the topic to somebody that is from Puerto Rico and they would have used examples and information that it's only locals understand that 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 was that motivation yeah I feel like anyone that's listening should see it if you're wondering the status it is called the last colony and it's a debate it is a commonwealth there's people that want statehood and there's people that want independence and then you can see the documentary and decide yourselves what you think it should be was it a challenge to shoot the film? 
the real challenge, shooting was a challenge, but the real challenge is really the editing. I mean, shooting was getting all those important Puerto Rican talking heads was not as hard as people think. You know, we got, a, I think we got a good variety. I, I didn't get 100% of the people, my dream cast of characters, if you will. And we got some characters that I had didn't anticipate, but um, it, we did, getting people was not hard. I always tell that, you know, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation, like why making documentaries? Well, if you're getting actors, you have to pay them. If you get politicians that have a message that you want to, they love to be in camera and you don't have to pay them. <laughs> they, you know, they want to, they want to be in front of the camera. So it's kind of like finding those opportunities where you have people that, you know, from a filmmaker's perspective, if you will, you're making a documentary with stars that have following, but they're, but they're not really actors, they're, but they're stars, you know, they have their following. So, you know, if you have a, many political stars in your film, you're you have an audience, you're building an audience just like you would assemble an audience with with Hollywood stars, you know, um, when they put, you know, Dwayne, the rock Johnson with Kevin Hart, what they're really doing is mixing audiences, you know, and things like that. So, so when you put a bunch of politicians in the same movie, that's, you know, from a marketing perspective, that was kind of like, well, we're, we're trying to try to put audiences together. We're trying to draw audiences from these, from their celebrity status. My interesting question is a lot has happened since you shot the documentary. Yeah. Have you thought of doing another documentary on this topic? Yes. The Last Colony, I've definitely thought about making it into a full trilogy. And I have already, already written concepts for it. But currently, because of my current situation, because of, you know, having a family and, you know, when I did the last colony, I was uh, married, but I didn't have a daughter. Now I have a daughter. And, you know, the amount of time that I can dedicate to a documentary is just not the same when you have, you know, that sort of responsibility. So I do have plans to someday do the last colony part two and part three. And, you know, I've made these plans public. I've, I'm pretty, you know, I don't even care if somebody wants to do it too. Like, I'm, you know, if somebody needs to do, tell this story, you know, go ahead. This is not my story. You know, I can tell this story, but all Puerto Ricans should be able to tell my, you know, I, I don't have ownership of this story. So of Puerto Rico's colonial uh, struggles. But if money was no object, if I could, you know, because making a documentary requires money and they don't make money. So it's really a sacrifice you do, honestly, to to put a story out there that you lives in your heart because it's not, you know, you don't do it for the money. You're just trying not to lose as much money as possible. It's, it comes down to that. So part two and part three, I would do when I am financially comfortable doing them. But I would, I would, you know, there's so much to talk about after the last colony ended. Everything from La Junta de Control Fiscal to Hurricane Maria to the earthquakes. Never, never mind COVID. Um, Trump's response. Uh, so many other things. So many other, you know, I, I, even the things that I just mentioned right now are kind of like the small, like the big, th bigger things that are like have been in the news. But there's so many smaller details that that could definitely make up part two and three. And not to mention, I'm just talking like the last colony, the first one, the one that it, it's made and it's out there. It's about the status, but I would make two and three about. I would go a lot deeper into the story of colonialism and economics and colonialism and corruption and dive deep in there. So I would definitely would like to cover the things that we don't cover after the film because, you know, we finished the film and, you know, and then things happen. 
but there's also, you know, I would like to cover those events after 2012, but there's also historical events from different perspectives. Like I said, corruption, the history of corruption in Puerto Rico that needs to be explored, needs to be presented chronologically. You know, the history of corruption in Puerto Rico is... It's so <laughs> rich and so mind blowing that that it's I, th- I think I would end it in part three with there with corruption. Yeah, definitely. When I finished seeing the last colony, I was like, you need to do summer 2019. <laughs> what happened yeah. with Ricardo Rosa? <laughs> yeah, that, and, you know, it's just so much has happened. But mm-hmm. again, like all those things, every historical thing could be a documentary in itself. All those things. So it's and the fact is that I am when I did the last colony, I was shooting in 2012, 2013. And I was a lot closer to what was going on in Puerto Rico because I had just lived there. Mm-hmm. you know and then almost a full decade went by and I was living in LA and now I'm living in Texas so it's there's a part of me that I'm seeing the story I know I, this is a story that I could do but at the same time like I feel like I'm getting farther away from Puerto uh, from Puerto Rico and the internal things like I'm not following the news like I used to so you know a lot of these stories sometimes I feel like they don't even belong to me like I did not live the summer of 2019 in Puerto Rico. I did not live Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. I lived it in the diaspora. My parents, you know, I had to take care of my parents that are in the island. But I, you know, I don't know what it was to be 100 plus days without power. Like, so there's, you know, I think some of those stories belong to the people there to, to tell them themselves. So that's, you know, my perspective was from the diaspora and like the the hopelessness of not being able to do anything. Let's move to away from the documentary. The last colony was your fourth Emmy, right? Correct. So the third Emmy was the national music TV show Te Para Tres with Pili Montilla. That's right. So how you come up with that show? Pili Montilla came up with that show uh, along with a friend in common, uh, Roberto de Jesus. They had already shot a some, I wouldn't say a full pilot, but they had some shot some uh, interviews. And they were looking for an editor, put them together. And I stepped in as, as the editor of the first pilot. And as we were working on editing and re-editing, I, I kind of, it became very obvious that Pili and I were working very well together and that I could also shoot. So I started pitching more ideas about, you know, how to move forward with the project, specific uh, production ideas. But that's, a, you know, Pili, the idea for the TV show created by Pili Montilla, 100%. And she brought it to me and we developed the show together for sure. But she created it. She, you know, she's Pili, I think she's a friend in common, right? You, you know, you yes. So she's a star in, in its, her own right, and she shines brightly, and she's very easy to work with. And it was very cool for me to be like, yeah, let's do a music show. Like, you want to do music? Yeah, I can do like, I can do, you know, I just did documentaries. Like, I remember thinking like the first time we shot together, and I was laughing. I was like smiling. She was like, what are you smiling about? I was like, because this is like I have I've been shooting like dogs, stray dogs and like ugly politicians all this time. And finally, I get to do something fun. Like finally, I'm like shooting like, a, you know, a, a beautiful face and like the cool lighting and and the cool interviews about with rock stars. And so, yeah, it's I was it was a very easy yes for me to be like, yeah, let's do it interview bands like especially because i knew her reputation i knew that she had access to that i knew that she could deliver on that and i knew i could deliver on my part too so that was a very easy yes and it's a, it was a beautiful project three years i mean more than three years three seasons 40 over 
40 or something episodes. I don't even remember how many we did. And it was very unfortunate that, you know, it was only three seasons. We always thought that we could, this could have been going on forever, but well, you know, that's how it is. You know, you sponsorships and money and the, the people want to go different ways. And so that was that, but it was a very cool project and I'm very proud of it. I'm still happy that it lives online. You can find it on YouTube. We'll put the episodes out there. The problem with Te Para Tres, if I could say that it has a problem, is that like many TV shows has the shelf shelf life. Whereas The Last Colony, although some of the things have changed, it's still very relevant. You know, interview shows have a shelf life, shelf life of like, you know, if, depending on what the topic is and stuff like that. So that, but that that's that was inherent inherently. And, it, you know, that's that's just an issue that comes with the territory. So, yeah, but it's something that I truly love. So you guys started with the show in Puerto Rico, right? And then it went national. We started with a show in Wapa TV, correct. We started shooting, well, it was shot in L.A., but we found Wapa to be the first home of the show. And then Mega TV picked it up from there. And that's when we went national. And you guys won the Emmy with it. Yeah. <laughs> season two. That was for season two. Yeah. We were nominated on season one. We didn't win. We won season two. And then season three, I don't even remember if we, were, we sent in a bunch of nominees. I don't think we were even nominated for season three, which I thought was our best season. But well, let's move on. You did a tech talk. How this opportunity came and how was it? The tech talk opportunity came from my high school. The high school that I went to, they do the TEDx, you know, basically to do a TED talk, some uh, organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, they request the TED talk license. And then, you know, it's kind of like a package. Like, I don't know how TED talk works. It's a vast world of complexities, but the whole point is that, you know, you, people can host independent TED talks as long as they meet the standards of TED Talk. So I was invited by my high school to do a TED Talk because they have gotten the license. So it was, it was I prepared for it, honestly, like for three straight months of writing and just working on that presentation. And I didn't take any jobs. I was, and I, you don't get paid for it. So I, <laughs> you know, and I'm happy to do it. You know, I was like, I, I jumped, I jumped on the opportunity but I, it's not like an improv that I just like start spitting ideas out of the blue. I worked really hard on the every word that I said, every single word, every pause, every the videos that I shows, the you know, everything was very calculated because that's the it's the tech talk requirement. Every tech talk you see, there's no improv there. Nobody's you know, everything has to be done right. So that was a long process of. Not just you know writing and then saying it out loud and then coming up is like no this is not like eh do I want to say this and it's just like what's better like so oh it was just a process it's a long process I'm very happy that it exists out there if I'm asked to do another talk talk I'll probably say yes but at the same time it's like oh it's a grueling process it's like ah oh, I don't know if I can you know you know sit down and write all that stuff it's it's a process. Yeah, it comes with the pressure because you know it's going to live forever. Like it has a standard. Like yeah. everyone knows about tech talk. Yeah, it, 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 it does. It is It is pressure. It's not. I mean, I was very relieved after I was, I was done. I could breathe again. Like I was very, <laughs> not nervous, but tense, tense. That's like everything. had, And I was happy how it went. But yeah, it was very relieved when I was done. What were you doing in 2019 right before pandemic happened? Right before the pandemic happened, I was just finishing doing a movie 
with Rosalind Sanchez called Satos. That was basically my last project before moving out of LA. As a matter of fact, 2019, the summer of the summer of 2019, Ricky Rosselló protest. During that summer, Rosalind and I were editing Satos in my house in LA, and we we're following very closely what was going on with the Puerto Rican situation. So that's what I was doing. We were we had just shot Satos in Puerto Rico. We had left with the footage, and then about a month or so afterwards, the summer of 19 exploded the that issue. And from a production standpoint. We were happy that we missed it because that would have put a big dent on our production. But yeah, we, we you know, so that's what I was doing. Uh, and then co we were going to do the premiere of Satos in Puerto Rico. And that was right at the beginning of COVID. And that killed, that that was the, the beginning of COVID. We were planning on the premiere. And that's the first time we were like here of like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to shut down for two weeks. <laughs> and those two weeks are two years now. How did pandemic affect you? I was, I, after Satos, I had moved to LA because of LA had just become basically unlivable for me financially. And I moved to Texas where it was, where my dollar, you know, where you get bigger bank for your buck. So I moved to Texas two or three months right before COVID. So it was like, I was moving to a new state, a new city to find an opportunity and then COVID hit. So it was like, oh, wait, you know, I'm not going to find anything now. Like there's no shooting now. There's... So there was just a time of co when COVID hit, it was complete shutdown for me of, of filmmaking of, you know, basically what I do. So I almost, I wouldn't say I reinvented myself, but I picked up new hobbies. I started doing woodworking. I picked up a guitar. I, I started playing guitar because I've never, you know, I always wanted to play guitar. So I COVID represented, like I was in lockdown and especially at the beginning, I was, we were very strict about following it. So it was, I just stopped being a filmmaker for a little bit and took a pause and started learning new crafts. And I started, you know, I bought some like woodworking tools and I started doing furniture and stuff like that, because that's basically all I could do during the pandemic. And you know, I couldn't go out and shoot. I couldn't, you know, find money to make movies. It was kind of like a hopeless situation where I just had to reinvent. So that's what I did. I started doing woodwork during the pandemic. So now that we've been here in two years into the pandemic, any current projects you want to talk about or you can talk about? Well, now I'm fully employed. Now I'm an employee of the Better Business Bureau of Texas. So now I am I am working on projects for basically for one client. You know, I am an employee, but it's it's kind of like I'm still a video producer. I'm still the video producer for this one client. And so all I'm doing right now is really doing videos for Better Business Bureau. And so I'm not like I do have a script that I want to go back to and do eventually but currently i'm just trying to be a family man and try you know, just, you know until covid really dies down like i don't even know how i could produce a movie under the current conditions especially because if it was expensive to make a movie before now with covid restrictions and like tests that, that you know that's like a 10% 15% extra cost so that that adds to the budget so i'm you know i'm not planning on shooting anything big anytime soon i am currently just as a living as a video producer and happy to <laughs> to you know just to have a client one client to please i'll go back to filmmaking don't don't worry don't worry <laughs> you want to share where people can see your work and your documentaries 
Sure. I have a website. It's called, it's Juan, my name, J-U-A-N dot mixform.com. Mixform, it's it's a website that I built a long time ago. I never wanted to change the name. So it's I don't, it's not like a brand that I use. It's not like my company is called Mixform or anything like that. But it was just like a name that was available for something. I, was, I just used it. So Juan.mixform.com. I, I have there my documentaries for free. Um, I put it on YouTube a while ago. It was I just wanted people to see them. I think it's more important people to see them than than try to sell one copy at a time forever. <laughs> so um, yeah, people can see them on on my website or just Google them, YouTube them. YouTube my name. Probably my name is probably the easiest. Juan Agustin Marquez. Not to be confused with a boxer Juan Marquez. <laughs> um, there you can find my stuff. Thank you so much, Juan, for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. 